In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Amen. On Christmas, we celebrated the incarnation, the becoming of flesh, of the Son of God. God joined our human race, which he created by joining a marriage. By being born of a virgin, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. By joining the marriage of Joseph and Mary, where he hid his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, Jesus honored marriage, teaching us that marriage is a holy institution wherein God hides much shame and much which the world would call shameful, but which is not shameful, but which the devil hates and loves to abuse. He joined a marriage and honored it and sanctified it, as he always does toward marriage. The fruit of marriage is children. The one flesh union of man and wife is designed by God to bring about new life. But God became man to do more than become new life and to bless one marriage. He became man to bring new life to all and to bless his whole creation, to bless our marriages, our children, and to direct our hearts to a greater marriage in heaven. Jesus was not the product of man and woman's marital union. He was and remains what is greater, the union of God and man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. His incarnation is the marriage, so to speak, of the divine nature and the human nature in one person. We call it the personal union. And the two shall become one flesh, God said. What God joined together, let no one separate. So now, God has become one with our human nature, and we will never and he will never cease to remain true God and true man. As we sing on Christmas, God is man, man to deliver. His dear Son now is one with our blood forever. And we beheld his glory, St. John continues, as we heard on Christmas morning. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This beholding of glory is what we consider during the Epiphany season, which is really really the same as Christmas, except for the fact that that which, which was hidden is now made manifest. This beholding of glory that John speaks about had its beginning, therefore, in today's Gospel from John chapter 2, the next chapter after Christmas morning, where John writes, as we just heard, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. To God alone be glory. Jesus manifested what belongs to God alone. Jesus revealed at this wedding that he is God. John calls his miracles signs. Miracles amaze, I suppose, but signs teach. They indicate. Jesus teaches. He directs. He signifies. And whatever he is doing, he is teaching. 
He is pointing. He teaches us that he is true God. He points to himself, to his own flesh and blood, and tells us where to find true God. He teaches what the master of the feast exclaimed, that he keeps the good wine for last. When all things were made that were ever made by this same word, now made flesh, God saw all that he made and called it good. God doesn't make cheaply. He makes what is good. He makes the best. He who is our creator came to be our savior in order to save the best for last. And he chose to prove that he saves the best for last by revealing his divine origin and power and might at a wedding. By joining our human race, Jesus honored marriage. For marriage is not just a good place to hide what you want the world not to see. It is a good place to reveal what the world needs to see, what the world needs to learn. By revealing his glory at a wedding, Jesus showed that it was he who in the beginning created marriage by creating the male and female. By revealing himself as he did, by turning water into wine, he showed that he alone blesses marriage with joy and with whatever we are ever to expect from marriage, including every pleasure, every happiness, contentment, children. All of these come from God, who in the beginning joined them together and called it very good. The last thing God made before he rested on the seventh day was marriage. He saved the best for last and called it very, very good. In Matthew 19, when Jesus spoke of the permanence of marriage, and it's permanent because only God joins them together, he appealed to what he himself did in the beginning when he created Adam and Eve and joined them together. He said, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God joins together. It isn't our desire that joins us together. It is God who joins us together. And it is God who gives us desires that he intends to sanctify and bless. In the beginning, God made them male and female. He formed the man out of the dust of the ground, and he formed the woman out of his sleeping side. He brought the woman to the man and married them to each other so that Adam recognized his wife as bone of his bone. He didn't get to know her. He saw her immediately as a gift from God. He knew her. Marriage, just like Adam and Eve, did not evolve from slime. Marriage did not evolve as a social institution. God created it. He instituted it. He gave it to his creation. The reason marriage is permanent on earth is because marriage is what God does for us. It's not what we organize for ourselves. Man takes part in marriage because God gave it to us. But just as man did not make woman, and woman did not make man, men and women do not make marriage. God does. An attack on marriage is therefore an attack on God. When men and women who can't control their desires for each other and they blame God for these desires for each other, as though God shouldn't have given them if he didn't expect them to do what they wanted to do. When young men and women, or old men and women, engage in these desires with no control, the intimacy that God reserves for the union which only he establishes, well, they sin against God. It doesn't matter if they're in love. It doesn't matter if they're committed to each other. 
What matters is if they're legally married. Legally. God created marriage to be a civil institution and the basis for all civilization. If you are not married you and you engage in sexual intimacy, you commit fornication. Fornication is an attack on marriage. And it's not just an attack on your own soul. As St. Paul warns us to avoid those lusts which war against the soul, it is an attack and rebellion against all civility and decency and order. Like all assaults on civility, or rather, more than any assault, the consequences of breaking the sixth commandment against adultery are the most devastating. God gave us marriage not just to govern our private affairs, but to protect every aspect of public life. And when this commandment is thrown out the window, we sure see what, what harm comes. Fornication is adultery, whether it is committed by married or unmarried people. And adultery is always an attack on marriage. It's not only a sin against those who are married within that committed relationship, it is also a sin against God who created man and woman. And adultery destroys marriage. It's interesting that the same God, therefore, who says that he hates divorce, and he does. You should too, right? And yet he makes adultery the only grounds for divorce in Matthew 19. Adultery hurts children. It is a sin against the children that God intends to protect within marriage. It is a sin against them. Right after Jesus defends marriage in Matthew 19, what does he do? He blesses the little children and he warns us not to prevent them from being brought to Jesus, even as he angrily rebukes his disciples. Preventing children from being born is not how children are protected. Bringing what God creates and loves to be blessed by Jesus is how we protect his children. God established marriage as a lifelong union of one man and one woman. This is how it was in the beginning when God made one wife for Adam. He blessed that union, and he continues to bless that union. He gives it not only every satisfaction which he may provide, but he gives it children as he so chooses according to his fatherly will. And because of this, this union which God himself creates between one man and one woman is what marriage is. It is, it is a relationship of man and woman depending on each other, serving each other, and waiting willingly for God to give them more that will then depend on them. And if you want your kids to serve you, I suppose you have to serve them first. It is a beautiful reminder within marriage of our relationship of dependency on God. And because of this, the union of a man with a man or a woman with a woman is not marriage. Not because we disagree with it, not because you're repulsed by it, but because by definition it cannot be. Not only does God explicitly forbid it in both the Old and New Testament, but that's not what he created. Same-sex marriage is, by definition, a contradiction in terms. It can't be. Such unions cannot possibly bring forth life. 
They can only bring forth death. God created men and women for marriage together. He joins men and women. He does not join together what do not fit together and what by definition cannot produce the life he creates and loves and redeems. Now since marriage is by God's design a civil institution, and since it is the basis for all civilization, civic civilization, you see that, since all authority as we consider, we'll get there. In Bible class today, civil authority begins in the home Since this is the case, it is wrong to imagine that there can be a religious definition of marriage on one hand, and then a legal or civic definition of marriage on the other hand. To speak this way is to attack the good gift of marriage which God created. There is not religious marriage versus civil marriage. There is marriage. It is especially important for those who hold civic authority to defend the definition of marriage since marriage itself is the foundation for all civic authority and that God ever gives to anyone. The chief duty of those who have civic authority is to honor and defend marriage and the home. Marriage and the home are defended not when religious liberty is defended, But when God's word is confessed, our marriages depend above all on God's word being confessed. So how do we know this, that marriage is an institution of God? Because God's word says so. If we define marriage simply based on what you want or what somebody else wants and some consensual agreement, we would have disaster we would have only very brief and periodic fulfillments of any desires. And we would have a bad conscience, betrayal, and no trust. But our Lord Jesus teaches us something magnificent, where he who is our creator, who made us in his own image as male and female, that he first manifests his redeeming glory, at a wedding. He changed water into wine in order to signify his love for marriage. We see marriages fall apart. We see marriages as the context of so many sins that hurt the most. Husbands and wives cheat on each other. You see people treating and even talking about marriage as a prison that keeps them from doing what they really want, calling the wife an old ball and chain or something awful like that. Husbands and wives are mean to each other. They're bitter. They treat marriage like dirt, as though marriage itself were the cause of all their angst and dissatisfaction. They blame God like Adam did in the garden. It was the woman you gave to be with me. Nothing has changed. And so drunkards, drug abusers, violent and angry men, mean and bitter women, irresponsible spenders, liars, those who never stop nitpicking and being cruel and exploiting whatever weakness you find in the one who has been joined to you, 
and a bond of trust. We see them blaming each other and this wonderful institution of marriage on their own sins. They blame God for a marriage when God gave us marriage precisely to bless us. And so we begin to think that marriage might be just a ruined relic of a more romantic and simpler past. No wonder people don't get married, but just move in together, and then pretend that their love will keep, that their love will sanctify, and God won't mind because, after all, God is love, just like theirs. But what utter foolishness is if God and his love can at the same time, being mocked for marriage, can be appealed to in order to bless illicit lust and envy. No, instead of treating what is abused by man, what is even redefined by perverts, and trashed by so many people who find so much sin within their marriages, rather we are to look to him who takes what is abused, who takes what is exploited, who takes what has become filthy, and cleanses it, and makes it holy, and he who made marriage knows how to sanctify marriage and restore it. He who made man knows how to save man and redeem us. He is able to take what is trashed and defiled and make it beautiful once again. Marriage is a wonderful estate. Christ comes into marriage and makes it wonderful. We know Christ as the bridegroom who gave his life for his bride, the church. He is her head by becoming her savior. As St. Paul tells husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so marriage is an institution where husbands cleanse their wives of all that the eyes of the world would judge and see them as beautiful and radiant by learning from Jesus who covers their sin as well. And this is how Jesus cleanses and sanctifies his church. He, he washes her sins away. He fills her with his Holy Spirit and gives her life that overflows. He does all of this in baptism, where he sanctifies his bride and makes her fruitful. The church, therefore, submits to Christ as to her Savior. The church isn't afraid that Christ is going to judge her. The church isn't afraid that Christ will abuse her or exploit her weakness or bring up to her while fighting with her later when she has confessed her sins and he has not drowned them in the depths of the sea but now holds them against her. No, Christ teaches us what marriage is to look like by being the perfect bridegroom, the perfect head. He tells her that she is beautiful. Christ rejoices in his church and loves her. He purchased her with his own blood. He defends her. Her children are his. He claims her as his beautiful bride. Jesus said that his hour had not yet come. The hour came for the miracle at the wedding of Cana. But the hour to which our Lord was referring had not come. And this hour is the hour that we particularly must focus on when it seems like no great wine, no better than last joy or pleasure is on its way. We see that hour in all its glory, where all glory was hidden, where he vouchsafed for us joy that 
comes in the end and that will last forever. When we join him at the marriage feast of the Lamb in heaven. He says in the same Gospel of John, chapter 12, that the hour has indeed come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then God glorified his name. He glorified the name of Jesus. It was on the cross where he laid all wrath upon his own son, who as true God married the flesh and blood of rebellious creatures. And he laid on him every anger he had against the adulterer, the fornicator, the mean husband, the bitter wife, the homosexual pervert, the serial divorcee, the one who has blamed marriage instead of him or herself on all the problems within his or her relationship. But by bearing all these sins away, Jesus saved the institution of marriage and preserves it now as a picture of his grace and mercy and teaches us to find in our own marriages the most beautiful context where we learn to forgive each other. This same Jesus comes into our marriages to sanctify them by teaching us to look to that perfect marriage in heaven. There's a little bit of uh, allegory in this text. Six water pots were used. There were water pots used for the purification that the Jews used in order to, uh, to sanctify things. As we know, six is one short of seven, and this is an allegory of sorts. It symbolizes for us that it is one short of the fulfillment of the law. It is one short of that Sabbath rest. The last thing that God made in the six days was marriage. Marriage is an earthly institution till death us do part. And all the obedience and perfection that you fulfill in this life on earth, all the love you try to show, if you have the perfect marriage, the perfect chastity, the perfect purity, it cannot wash away the sin deep in your heart. It cannot erase from you the blame which your breaking of the law has revealed. You can't do it. But Jesus alone can take creation. Jesus alone can join creation and fulfill all the promises that God made to creation. Jesus alone can use those six to bring us into the seven. He fulfills the law for us in order to bring us into the Sabbath rest of heaven when we will enjoy forever the marriage feast of the Lamb to his bride. He does not sanctify us together here by means of legal regulations, purification codes, no, but by his pure grace which we find in holy baptism where all our sins are washed away. One more allegory is Jesus who symbolizes the church, or Jesus, Jesus' mother Mary who symbolizes the church for us. She who once said to the angel, let it be to me according to your word. She now says to the servants, let it be to you according to his word. And this is what the church does. First we receive Jesus by submitting to him in trust, not in fear. 
Let it be to me, gracious Lord, as you have promised it to me. And then what does the church do with that command which she now receives? She commands the servants, the ministers of the gospel, to preach the gospel. Whatever he says to you, do it. And so this is the church's job. This, this is the church's mission to tell all ministers, all evangelists, all missionaries, to tell all those Jesus calls to be his servants in preaching the gospel, to do what Jesus tells them to do. And so Christ binds himself to his bride. She receives him, and he does not leave her. Jesus is the Lord of the church, and he is always and ever faithful to her. So when we look around and see how a dying and increasingly godless culture shows such contempt for marriage, so much as to even redefine it, we see not only that all the wickedness in the world cannot avert and change the course of nature, but we don't rely on the course of nature. We don't drink mere water. We drink wine. We drink joy which only God can give. We see marriage defended most clearly and wonderfully, not where nature comes roaring back to insist on what is right and what is wrong. The Muslims can bring that. Godless pagans can re-insist on what marriage ought to be. What we embrace when we defend marriage above all is that beautiful picture which we have of Christ and his church. He joins us. He will never replace us with a prettier, younger, or more obedient wife because he himself has washed us clean. He holds us safe in his keeping. He cannot deny himself. If marriage is secure in the incarnation where God will never divorce his flesh and blood, so also marriage is secure between us and God through baptism. He will always remain faithful by forgiving us freely all our sins. And as often as we eat and drink his body and blood in the holy sacrament of the altar, we are brought back to the same mercy which he showed to us when he first gave us birth by watering the word. Whatever is lacking, therefore, in our marriages, in our obedience, in our imitation of Jesus, is never lacking in what God gives to us freely every day through Christ his Son within the Holy Church. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen.